It's, it's, a, it's a gift and a privilege to be here. It's been a while since I've preached here uh, at 12 South. I used to do it more often when I worked with the youth group, but now, I, like Daryl said, I pastor our East Nashville congregation, and given the time of our service, it's a little bit challenging to get here. Uh, but I'm, I'm pumped to be here with, uh, with you all this morning to see some faces I know and see uh, a lot that I don't know. And like Daryl said, uh, we over in East Nashville, Midtown East, are a part of this same church. We're one church. And what we believe as Midtown Fellowship is that God uh, actually has a mission for us. Or, or the way we said it when we preached the books, through the book of Acts, was that it's not so much that God has a mission for his church, but that he has a church for his mission. That God has called us to, together, he's created us, and he's, he's brought us uh, into this organization, this institution, this organism, because he has a work that he is doing out in the world. And what we believe here at Midtown is that for us to do the work that God has called us to, that he's called us to do it together. That the work that God has called us to as a church here in Nashville is too big for any one congregation to do alone. And so we do this thing together as one church. Uh, and, and kind of from that perspective, I want to invite y'all, if you live over on the east side or kind of up and around the east side uh, and you come here to 12 South, I want to invite you, come check out what God is doing in East Nashville. Because as much as God is moving here, he is also moving over there. And I want you to invite you to come to see, uh, to participate in that, and uh, even to ask, to ask God, is God calling you to be on mission uh, with us over there? Because the mission is the same. And whether God is calling you to be on mission over there or God's calling you to be on mission here, the invitation is to be on mission. Because with who we are as a church, like I said, that's what we believe is that uh, we've been called into this work together. And can I also say uh, thank you? Like, thank, thank you for being a part of Midtown. Thank you for being involved here because your involvement here allows us to establish this beachhead for the gospel in East Nashville. Your giving here helps support us as a church in East as we uh, fight to become self-sustaining and also be able to give back to this movement also. So I uh, want you guys to hear that I'm grateful for you. East is grateful for you. There's a work of the gospel happening there because of what God is doing here. Uh, and to invite you to be a part of it. And when you come to ask God, not is this better than 12 South, but to ask God, is this the place you are calling me uh, to be on mission with you? Okay, so that's not the sermon. That's just, uh, that's just the introduction. Bram Panetti, that's my name. Okay, uh, <clears throat> yes. Uh, so as we kind of move into the sermon this morning, uh, I wanna kind of give you a frame for what we're gonna be talking about. Uh, that really Revelation 6, which is the passage we're going to be in, you can flip there in your Bibles, we'll get there in a minute, uh, is a passage that is all about expectation. That what God is doing in revealing to us this part of the vision of, of John's apocalypse is, is he is shaping our expectation for what it means to live as Christians in the world in between Jesus' first and his second comings. And what we know about expectation, what you and I have lived, is that our expectations are powerful. That our expectations have, uh, have the power to shape the way that we experience our life, don't they? At East, sometimes people respond when I ask questions. So feel free to respond, to nod along, give me a yes, whatever you want to do. But I'd love to know that you're awake here this morning. So, uh, so our expectations are powerful things. Like I expected you to, to say something there, right? Uh, and I will tell you, I have lived that most powerfully uh, as a Vanderbilt fan. 
okay? So I went to Vanderbilt back in 2008, my freshman year. I like did not grow up in football country, so I'm here in the SEC for the first time. Some of you are like, wow, welcome to it, right? Uh, and I was like all in, like a painted up front row, really going for it. And it was one of Vanderbilt's best years of football history, okay? We beat Auburn that year when game day came to town, so big deal if any of you are Auburn fans, sorry about it. Uh, and then I had to learn the very hard and sobering reality that Vanderbilt is actually very bad at football. <laughs> that one year was really an anomaly, right? Uh, and over time, I have come to accept that that is true. And I learned that Vanderbilt is actually incredibly adept at snatching defeat from the jaws of victory. I watched it happen on the 10-yard line over and over again, okay? So normal. So my expectation now when I go to a game, when I take my kids to a game, is that we're going to lose. We're not there to see us win the game. We're there for the snacks and the experience, right? That's just part of it. Now, think about, though, if you are a UT fan, oh, okay, yeah, we'll get there. Uh, you're always almost good, right? <laughs> And it's so painful because every year the expectation is this is the year, but it never quite is, which means our experiences of the fall are totally different. Yours is full of disappointment and sadness, and I don't even notice it because <laughs> I expected to lose in the first place. Right? Our expectations have the power to shape the way that we experience the world. Like, think about your life. Like, what are the things that you, expe you expect to be true about your life at this moment? What is the job that you expect to have right now? Or how, where do you expect to be in your career and are not? What about your relationships? What are the relationships that you've expected to have in your life by now? The marriage that you've expected to have? The house? Right, talk about that in Nashville. I shouldn't be renting anymore. I should be in a house. The kids who should be in that house with you, the kids who should be out of your house by now. We, are, we live our lives with all of these shoulds. We're shooting all over ourselves all the time. And the weight, and the weight of that expectation, uh, it, it totally changes the way that we experience life. Does it, do those expectations have the power to change our lives? Well, let's say this. What I was expecting, there was a no, so <laughs> clearly I'm not doing a very good job explaining this. Uh, they can't actually change your life. Like, you expecting to have a better job is not going to get you a better job. You expecting to be in a house by now is not going to get you in that house. But what it does have the power to do is change how you experience your current circumstances. That rather than being able to be content and enjoy the place that you have been placed, you spend all the time wishing for all the places you could have been. Does that make, are we, okay, are we, good. Okay, so it, it can't change my actual circumstances, but it can change the way I experience my circumstances. And Jesus knows that about us. And so in this revelation, he is so kind to clarify, to give us accurate expectations of what it is like to live in between his first and his second coming. And here's what Revelation 6 teaches us to expect. It teaches us to expect that as the kingdom of God, as the, as the king gets closer to bringing his kingdom, that what it's going to provoke in the world is opposition. That as Christians who are living in the world, what we should expect in our lives is chaos and opposition. Revelation 6 teaches us to expect suffering. And it teaches us to expect the day of judgment, the day that the lamb returns, the day of the wrath of the lamb is what Revelation 6 calls it. 
those are sobering expectations to have when we come to the world. And yet, in shaping those expectations in us, Jesus is doing something so loving for us. Because he's calling us to engage in reality, not as we would like it to be, but reality as it actually is. And what we're going to find as we dive into this text is Jesus actually has things to say to us about the way that we choose to live, how we live in the midst of those expectations. So if you have your Bibles, you can open to Revelation 6, and I'm going to read through it for us. It says, Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals. And I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come! And I looked, and behold, a white horse. And its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. And when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come! And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be the voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. And when he opened the fourth seal, I heard a voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. And when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of all those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. And they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth and the moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that's being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who was seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Let's pray. Father, uh, your word this morning is a heavy word. It's a sobering word, uh, Lord, and uh, we know that your word, it, it brings life. And so we pray that you would do what only you can do, that you would meet us here this morning with your Holy Spirit, that you would breathe on these words and that you would breathe them into our hearts and that you would bring us life, God, that you would change us. And we ask you and we trust you to do that for us this morning. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we start this morning, I want to remind you kind of where we are in the book of Revelation, the setting of the book of Revelation, who's receiving it, right? We've got uh, these people, these seven churches scattered throughout Asia Minor who are under immense persecution, 
who are, whose churches are struggling with all kinds of different issues, false teaching and immorality and all of these different issues. And, and John, he gets this vision, and so he writes a letter to these churches to share this vision because he wants to pastor them right where they are. So this, this chapter is, is a part of this vision that John is writing to the people in Asia Minor to pastor them, to care for them right where they are. At the very beginning of the book of Revelation, in Revelation 1-7, John says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds. This is Jesus. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. That what John is telling these people to expect is that even now, Jesus is on his way. Even now, Jesus is coming. He's creating in them, he's reminding them of the expectation that they have and that they should have, that Jesus is imminently approaching earth to bring his kingdom. We have some friends uh, who, are staying, who stayed with us this last week. We have three kids, they have three kids. It was a zoo, okay? Uh, and they visited us from Joplin, Missouri. It's an eight-hour drive. And I want you to just imagine what it would be like to wait for your friends to arrive on a road trip, for us to wait, for our kids to wait, for their friends to arrive on this road trip before the internet or uh, find my, okay? Like before we could track to the minute when our friends were gonna arrive. Like what would have happened back in the day is we would have gotten a call from their landline to our landline and they would have said, hey, we are leaving Joplin. We'll see you when we see you, right? And so we would have wondered over those eight hours, where are they? When are they going to get here? Because so many things can happen between Joplin and Nashville. I know because I drove it the other way, right? Traffic can happen. Weather can happen. A lot of things could happen with your kids. And you know, okay, they're on their way. They're going to be here soon, but we don't know exactly when. And so what happened this time is even with Find My, my kids are still waiting at the door asking, are they here? When the Amazon man comes, oh, they're here. No, no, it's just the Amazon man, right? But the expectation is if they're on the edge of their seat. We were on the edge of our seat waiting for our friends to come without knowing exactly when it was going to be, but we knew they're on their way. So that's the expectation that John is building into these people he's pastoring. It's the expectation that they have. And, and remember where we were just before this in Revelation, that we have seen this picture of, of the throne room of God, and God is standing there with this, with this scroll in his hand, and John is, the angels are crying out, who can open the scroll? And John's weeping because no one's there to open it, right? But then he sees what? The lamb who was slain, right? He hears the line of the tribe of Judah, and he turns and he sees the lamb who was slain, who takes the scroll, which is God's plan for all of redemptive history. That's what's happened right before this. And now the scrolls are being opened. And one of the four living creatures cries out, come. And who do you think they expect to come? This is where you can participate. Who do you think they expect to come? Jesus. That's what they're expecting, right? But the horseman who comes is not quite Jesus. A white horse. And a rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. And then a second seal. And one of the four living creatures cries out, come, right? Jesus, come. But instead of Jesus coming, no, it's a horse again, bright red, whose rider was permitted to take peace from the earth. Right there, waiting at the door, opening it. It's not Jesus. 
And it happens again with the third horse. Come with these living creatures who represent all of creation who are crying out, come, Lord Jesus, come. And instead of Jesus, this third horse, what they get is a black horse. And this whole a quart of wheat for a denarius, three quarts of barley for a denarius, what they're talking about here is economic disaster and dislocation. The kind of inflation that levels people's lives. Not like it's a little bit more expensive to fill up my gas tank, but like we're talking post-World War I, Weimar Republic, like I've got to put bills in a wheelbarrow and take them to the store to buy bread because if I don't buy it today, I won't have enough bread for tomorrow. That's the kind of inflation it's talking about. And yet... The people who are at the top of the pyramid, uh, there's still plenty for them. Don't touch the oil and the wine. So people are expecting Jesus. The church is expecting Jesus, and what they get is conquering and to conquer, right? All of this violence and enmity between different groups, what they get is peace removed from the earth where people are killing each other, and this cycle of violence spins up. They get all this economic dislocation and disaster and injustice, And the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come, and I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. That death and pain and famine are everywhere. Do you connect with that at all? That as we wait for Jesus in this time between his first and his second coming as we are crying out, Jesus, come, that what is the, back, the backdrop of our lives is this kind of pain. This kind of chaos. And Jesus is telling the church who are first, the churches who first received this letter, he's saying to them, if, remember he's called them to conquer and to overcome. Because these churches are struggling with all kinds of issues. And what is happening to them is they've been expecting Jesus and all of this disaster, all of this chaos is coming instead. And what they have started to say is, I don't know about this. This isn't what I signed up for. That what they're experiencing is disappointment in what they thought it meant to be a Christian. Their expectations aren't being met. And so what is happening is that they're choosing uh, comfort and compromise over the integrity of the gospel. They've welcomed these false teachers into their midst that that because of what they believe, what has happened is, do you realize they have been like cut off from their relationship? They've been cut off from their families. They've been cut out of society. They've lost their jobs. Some of them are even losing their lives because of what they say they believe about Jesus. And so there's this temptation to soften what they believe. Say, well... That they've been given these boundaries around their lives now that they're following Jesus. That he has said, hey, this is what is good and what is true, so walk in it and live in it. And what they're doing is they're looking outside of it and they're saying, yeah, but what about that thing? And while I wait here in the midst of all of this pain, can I get some comfort? And those things that are outside those boundaries, those seem a lot more comforting to me. So let me stretch the boundaries and go and grab some of that. And what Jesus tells them, right? The call when we walk through those letters, the call is to conquer and to overcome. And what he's telling them is if you're gonna conquer and you're gonna overcome, you've gotta have clear eyes about what this world is gonna be like as you wait between the first and the second coming. You think that that has any relevance for us in our lives? As we wait, in the pain and the chaos of experiencing what these horsemen are bringing into our world, 
Do you feel the pull to compromise or to seek comfort? Of course. Of course. That's what it means to be human. And let's also acknowledge there's a very unique sense of that in the world of the moment that we live in. That the world that we live in says that comfort, it it is one of the absolute highest idols in our world. That us being comfortable, feeling good, keeping each other feeling good is the best thing that we can do for each other. Living our funfetti life, right? And friends, all you gotta do is walk out along this street to see it. The neon signs that say, come in here and just buy a little bit more and come and be happy. There's this guy, Mark Sayers, and he wrote a book called The Non-Anxious Presence, and he says, the choice to prioritize comfort, ease, and good feelings above growth is the choice to embrace and accept personal, spiritual, and emotional immaturity. The choice to prioritize comfort, ease, and good feelings above growth is the choice to embrace and accept personal, spiritual, and emotional immaturity. All of that, that we feel that tug all the time. That we want to resist the suffering. We want to medicate it. We want to seek out comfort. To say, Lord, following you is too hard. Let's, let's blur the boundaries here. Let me step outside of them and get what you have for me outside of them. Because this is so hard right now. And what Jesus is doing is he's reshaping our expectations. And he's saying, you've got to expect that this chaos is going to come because you're a human in the world. And it's actually going to come against you because you are part of my kingdom. That's going to happen. Now that you expect it, now that you know it's coming, would you accept it? That rather than trying to escape from it, would you believe, would you trust me, Jesus is saying, that I have something for you in the midst of it and I want to meet you there. We're going to conquer, if we're going to overcome what it means is to, to expect and to accept the suffering that is coming into our lives through these horsemen out in our world, through these evil systems, and through sin. Y'all, because what we read about in these horses, it's, it's the exponential compounding of the effects of sin. We're in 12 South, right? There are a lot of you who are involved in the, in the finance industry, or as you call it, finance, right? <laughs> you know how money works that you put money in the bank and it grows because there's interest and as that money grows, then that money collects interest and it grows and it gets exponential, right? That's how sin works. That's how the consequences of sin work in our world. That's the slaying that that this second horse is talking about, that as pieces are removed from the earth, this cycle of violence starts. And what is true is that when you perpetrate violence against me, my response is to want to perpetrate violence against you, right? If you were hurting me with your, with your words, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to go and talk about you to all kinds of different people. I'm going to take that hate that you have put toward me and spread it out to all the people around me. That what we're visited by with these horsemen are the effects of sin, the compounding effects of sin in our world. And that as Jesus comes with his kingdom, as he gets closer and closer to his coming, the world and its systems and our sin, it pushes back on that coming. And the harder it gets pushed because of Jesus' closeness, the more it pushes back. That what we should expect is this growing, this intensification of chaos and pressure. Yet Jesus is inviting us. He's saying, if you will accept that it's real and lean into it with me, I will meet you there. 
The expectation is that as the kingdom pushes in, all the forces opposed to the kingdom are gonna push back even harder. And what that teaches us to expect in our lives is suffering. But the suffering doesn't mean that something is wrong or something is wrong with the gospel. It means that there is something wrong in the world that has always been wrong. And when that suffering comes and is directed at us, the call may not be at all to change the variables in our lives, but instead to ask God, what do you have for me right here? And let me tell you one of the things God has for you right where you are. Is that as you experience and take into yourself the pain and the suffering that is all around you, that God has something that he wants to do in you. He wants to grow you. And, and part of how that happens is that that pain and that suffering, it comes into us and God does something with it. He, with it. he, he metabolizes it in us and something different comes out of us than what comes out of the world. That when we experience violence, rather than putting violence back out into the world, what we put out into the world is the cry, how long? That's what we see with this fifth seal. When I opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. And when we hear that, we often think about like martyrs for the faith. We think about people who died like a long time ago in the Roman Colosseum, or we think about people in the Middle East who were dealing with ISIS. We think about those kind of martyrs. But something you have to understand about the book of Revelation is that when Revelation talks about people who are following Jesus, basically all of them die in Revelation. All of them. We get pictures like this where everyone who is a Christian is, is martyred for their faith. And, and what it is calling us to understand is that while not all of us may lose our lives for, for faithfulness to the gospel, that what will happen, what we are all called to as followers of Jesus is to die to ourselves. That there is a death that we all experience as followers of Jesus. And that as we experience that death, as the pain and suffering from this world comes into our lives, as the pain and suffering that comes from following Jesus comes into our lives, that what we cry out with, with the, the saints in this verse is, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long? Lord, how long? That what comes into us is the pain and suffering that these four horsemen bring, and what comes out of us is prayer. Because make no mistake, every prayer that you have prayed your entire life is a riff on the prayer, how long? Everyone. Every prayer that you have prayed is a desire for the kingdom to come, coming out of you. Like when you pray about sickness in your life or in the life of someone you love and you say, God, would you heal? That what you're saying, you're looking through this prism of hope of the gospel and you're saying, I know there is a day coming when you will make all things right and death and disease will be no more. And you're saying, Jesus, can I have a taste of that now? Can we have a taste of it now? When you are crying out to God about the, the physical needs in your life, the need for a job, the need to make ends meet, and you're saying, God, would you provide for us now? What you're saying all the way down below is, Lord, there is a day coming when you have promised I will hunger no more and I will thirst no more. God, would you give me a little taste of that now? Would you bring a little bit of that kingdom into my life now? God, when you are struggling with the anxiety and the depression and the worry of this life that can be so crushing, 
when you're wondering, where is my purpose? What am I doing? What is this all for? And you're crying out or trying to cry out to God about that, what you were saying is, Lord, there is a day coming when you promise me you will wipe away every tear from my eyes. And there is a day coming where I'll be in your presence and there will be the fullness of joy. And you're saying, God, can I have a taste of that now? That every prayer that you pray is a hope uh, for the kingdom God is bringing. How long, oh Lord? And so we take the pain and the suffering out of this world, we take it into ourselves and rather than putting it back out, out into this world as sin that keeps compounding, we put it back out into the world as prayers to God and we say, how long, Lord, come, come soon. And guys, to engage in life that way is hard, isn't it? To be that honest about what is happening in you and that honest about what's happening in the world. And here's what you need to know is that there is a limit to the pain. We see that in this passage. Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer. So hard. I hate waiting for pages to load on Google, right? And a, a little bit longer for justice. God, we have been waiting a long time. A little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. That God is saying, wait a little bit longer because I have people who I'm still calling to myself. Just a little bit longer, just wait. And as you wait, you're gonna suffer because he's saying there are people here who have yet to die for my name. Wait a little bit longer. Because there is suffering that's still to take place, but there is a limited amount of it and God knows the limit of it that there will be a day in your life when the suffering will stop. And even now, there is a finite amount of suffering that will happen in your life. And it is limited to that, and God will not allow it to go one, one drop beyond that. And I know there are times in your life where it has felt like the allotment of suffering that you have been given is more than you can bear, and it's true. Jesus is bearing it with you. And he will not give you There's a limit. You gotta know that there's a limit. And knowing there's a limit is so freeing to us because it reminds us that the, the suffering and the pain that so often feels like a flood that's overwhelming the riverbanks and covering every part of our lives, that it's not true, that it does not cover everything, that it is, it is limited and it has to stay in the channel that God has provided for it. And it allows suffering to be present in our lives, but to find its proper place and for the other gifts that God has given us to also find their radiance and glory. Eugene Peterson talks about this in his book, uh, Reverse Thunder, which is a commentary on the book of Revelation. And he uses this example of a woman uh, in, a, in a Bible study he was leading. And he says that this was a woman who, uh, who had a nervous breakdown. Her whole life was in chaos, he says. Nothing fit together. She could see no meaning in anything. She felt overwhelmed by evil and guilt and sheer bad luck. And she went to a counselor and was guided by him to take a look at each detail that she'd lumped into a large pile and called evil. 
Item by item, the feelings and events and actions were examined. Not one of them, she said, became any less horrible or less palatable as she did that. But something else happened while she was doing it. She began to discover other items in her life that had been obscured by the great lump of piled up wrongs. Relationships that were delightful, songs that were ravishing, sights that were heart stopping. She began to experience the wonder of her own body and how much of it was working well. She began to trust the integrity of her own feelings and how valuable they were. She began to realize the preciousness of other lives in ways she could appreciate them. None of the evil was abolished, but it was all in a defined perspective. The nameless evils had names. The numberless wrongs were numbered. She was hardly aware of the point at which the pro proportion shifted, but now it was the good that seemed endless, and the glories that were beyond counting. Nothing in her life had changed. Everything in her life had changed. But that's the invitation of acknowledging, of trusting Jesus that the suffering in our lives has limits. And here's what he promises you, is that the suffering that you are experiencing, the pain that you are bringing into your life, that you're pouring back out as prayer, that pain, it has limits, and it is redemptive. But there is a fixed amount of pain that will occur in the world, and that as we are experiencing pain, it is filling up the suffering of Christ. Paul says that. I'll tell you, I'm a pastor, I don't understand that all the way, Okay. But here's what he says. He says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Which means that as, as you are suffering out in the world, as you are suffering as a Christian in the world, the suffering that you are taking in, that Jesus is in it with you and he's experiencing it alongside of you. You are not alone. And in some mysterious way, the suffering that you are experiencing is filling up the suffering that is lacking in Christ. And when that is full in Christ, he will be here. He will not wait a second longer than is necessary. And so as you metabolize that pain and you pour it back out as prayer, you are hastening the day of Jesus' return to earth. Come, Lord Jesus. And here's the thing, guys. He's going to come. This passage, it teaches us to expect his coming. And the day of his coming is a terrifying day. That's what this six seal is about. A great earthquake, the full moon became like blood, the stars fell to the earth, the sky vanished like a scroll. That John is not describing for us this, this physical picture of necessarily what's actually gonna happen. He is searching for words to describe what it's like when the whole cosmos comes undone. And comes undone because it's the day of the wrath of the lamb. We have talked about the paradox of the lamb, that the lion who John hears, when he looks, he sees the lamb who was slain. The paradox we encounter in this passage is that lamb who was slain is a lamb who comes with wrath. Can I tell you guys, this is, a, this is a part of the scriptural narrative that I'm so uncomfortable with, that I often want to push away from and hide from myself and from other people. Do you ever experience that? But y'all, the teaching about God's wrath is a core component of all of the story of scripture. You cannot get away from it. You cannot escape it. You can't have Jesus without having the teaching about wrath because Jesus talks about it just as much, if not more, than any other prophet. 
There's no Jesus. If you want to create a Jesus without this, the Jesus that you're creating is a figment of your imagination. And if we are going to be Christians who are genuinely wrestling with the gospel and having it change our lives, we're going to be taught wisdom from God. We have to embrace that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So let's, let, let's take a minute just here and, and look at this idea of God's wrath because what we will see when we look at it is that there is something about it that is true, that is beautiful, and that it in fact is good. Okay, will you let me use uh, a kind of silly illustration to help us get this point? I'm gonna like take us up for a minute, okay, before we go back down. <clears throat> Have you ever flown on Southwest Airlines? Yeah, there are a lot of things to be angry about there, right? So where am I going to go? Which one am I going to choose? So like, have you ever been, and you're like, you're bringing out, you're like, you're in the C boarding group and you're trying to figure out, is there going to be room for my rolly suitcase in the overhead bin? And you come across someone who has stuffed, maybe it's you, who have stuffed your very large coat in the overhead compartment instead of under your seat. Whew. I am so mad at you, okay? To the point where this justified and directed anger, I, will say, excuse me, is this your backpack? Please put it under your seat, okay? Because I'm not gonna check this bag. Are you guys connecting with this at all? And I can, there are plenty of other situations in your life where, where you know, like when someone's speeding up the shoulder of I-65, and I'm like, I'm gonna get over and block you, right, because I'm so angry at you right now. That kind of anger, can you, can you feel it? It's like you're the Hulk, right? When you feel that justified and directed anger, you're like, I could do anything. What about when that anger is directed uh, at someone who has severely wounded or abused you? And you f do you feel that same Hulk-like anger there? That justified, directed anger? What about when it comes at somebody, when, when someone has hurt or abused someone who you love. Do you feel that justified, directed anger? I hope you do. Because Jesus does. Because sin and its effects in the world are destructive and damaging and wrong. And when we see that these horsemen are going to be judged, we say yes. But when we see all that judgment has to do with me, we say no. Right? Because when I feel that anger towards someone else and I know it's justified, I'll embrace it. But when that anger comes at me, no thank you. And we have all kinds of ways we cooperate with each other in hiding it from ourselves. Like when a friend comes to you and says, can you believe that someone was so mad at me about this thing? And what we say is, yeah, that's outrageous. And what we're thinking is, I know exactly why they said that to you because I have felt the exact same way, but I'm not going to tell you because when it happens to me, I want you to say, yeah, that's outrageous to me too. Guys, we pay people to tell us that our sin is not our fault. We pay people to tell us that it's our Enneagram. Don't we? Y'all laugh. It's true. I, I can't help it. That's the way I am. We pay people to sit with us and unpack our stories and tell us you can't help it because of what happened to you. And so the sin that you're putting out into the world is not your fault. But it is our fault. And if you are seeing, just for the record, a good counselor, a good counselor is also telling you it's your fault. They're not letting you off the hook. But we all want to be let off the hook so bad, we'll purposely misunderstand what they're telling us. 
because we know that those four horsemen that are out in the world bringing chaos and death actually often have the reins of our own hearts. To conquer and to, to, to conquer and to conquer, that we have the desire to exercise dominion that we have no right to exercise over the lives of other people, don't we? To possess them and to use them. That's in us. We act that way. To slay and to be slain. When someone comes against us with violence, you better believe we are prepared to pour it right back out on them, but pour it out even more. We can talk about economic hardship as a system, but if we have the chance to get ahead by pushing someone else down, are we going to do it? We have. That these four horsemen have reign in our own heart. That's sin, y'all. And the same way we cheer it when God says, I'm gonna bring justice against it out in the world, that it is, it's that same desire to see justice that, that leads God in his love to bring justice and wrath against sin wherever he finds it, especially and even when we are the perpetrators. And in this passage, the kings of the earth, the great ones, the generals, the rich and the powerful, everyone, all the people who are running these systems, who are perpetrating this sin, who through seeking their own comfort are willing to stomp on other people. But not just them, everyone, slave and free, what did they do when the wrath of God came? They hid themselves in caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us. No one is saying it's not fair. No one is saying you don't understand. People are saying, I know that I deserve this and I'm trying to escape it. Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who was seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath is come and who can stand? The very sobering invitation of this passage for us is it's an invitation to repentance. that no one can stand under the wrath of the Lamb. But that this Lamb uh, was the Lamb who was slain. That this Lamb is the Lamb who has gathered his people, like we read about in the fifth seal, under the altar. Who has said, come and take refuge under the blood that I have shed for you. And this is what repentance is. I want you to imagine there's a mirror here, okay? When I did this in East, I had a full-length mirror a full-length mirror. We're looking at ourselves and we are consumed with ourselves, with our comfort, right? With our idols, with all of the things that we chase that aren't God that bring destruction to us and to the lives of the people around us and yet we're enamored by it. But what scripture tells us is true is that we also know the face of God is back here and we don't want to look at it because we know if we look at it that what we're going to see is wrath and judgment and so we hide from it and we stay focused on ourselves and on our sin and the call of repentance is what we turn from ourselves and here's what you have to know if you have never done that repentance before is what you're going to find when you turn to see the face of God when you, when you turn away from your sin and you turn toward the face of God what you are going to see is the loving face of Jesus the Jesus who had those four horsemen turned against himself for you that when you were an enemy of God, took the cup of God's wrath and drank every drop of it. 
who says, when you will look at me and you will receive my love, it means that there is no wrath left for you. None. That this passage is a call to repentance. Would you turn from being obsessed by yourself and would you, would you leave that and would you look fully in the eyes of this lamb who before the foundation of the world was committed to redeeming you? Would you look at him and would you experience his love for you? Oh, that's the call of this passage. Come on, come hide under the altar. Be covered by his blood. Come and experience the blessing, the benediction of the smiling face of Jesus looking over your life now so that when he comes at the end, you're not trying to hide from his face. And if you have never done that, that's what becoming a Christian is. It's turning from this and it's turning to see the face of Jesus and living in light of his face. Come on. And if you are here and you've been following Jesus a long time, you know what the call of this passage is? It's the same thing. That you would repent, that we would repent, that we would turn from our obsession with ourselves, and that we would turn and that we would be captivated by and live in the radiance of the beautiful face of Jesus. That Jesus who has, because of his great love for us, preserved us from the day of judgment that's to come. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we find all kinds of ways to distract ourselves from the pain of this life. Uh, and Lord, right here in the moment of sanity, we just acknowledge the chaos and the suffering and the pain that sin has brought to us and to our world. Lord, and we cry out, how long? Lord, how long? Jesus, we pray that you would come quickly. And as we wait, Lord, would you take that pain and suffering in our lives? Would you use it in redemptive ways? Would you turn our hearts to repentance, Lord, and to prayer? And would you send us out uh, as your agents uh, of your kingdom into this world? And we pray these things in the precious and holy name of your son, Jesus. Amen.